Good morning. Please stand for the reading of the scripture. This is in the New International Version, uh, John chapter 15, verses 9 to 16. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. If you are, you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. Uh, you may sit down. Thank you. And this is God's word. Amen. Um, I'm doing double duty today. Uh, I read the scripture, and I'm also going to introduce the speaker because he's a friend of mine. And it started in 1985. I attended a, an evening service at Grace Chapel, and the speaker that night was Doug Hall, and he was talking about urban ministry. And since I grew up in the city in Providence, um, I was very fascinated by what he was saying. So I met him out in the lobby afterwards, and I talked to him. And that began a 30-year relationship where we were involved in all kinds of things, some of which we got in trouble and some of which we didn't. But, um, but I learned a few things about uh, Doug during that time. First, I learned that Doug is probably the smartest person I know in the Boston area. His wife, Judy, is probably a little bit smarter, but we won't, we won't say too much. Second, Doug and Judy have been involved with Emmanuel Gospel Center for about 40 years. And it started with a small group, and now they have about a staff of about 35 people. This staff is involved in every possible kind of ministry you can imagine. Number three, Doug and Judy also were involved in co-founding the Center for Urban Ministry, which is a part of Gordon-Conwell Seminary and meets in Roxbury. And students come from all over the world to learn about how to do practical ministry at the center. Uh, finally, Doug does not only work in Boston and in the U.S., he also is involved in other countries. For example, he's involved in microeconomic development in India. Now, there's only one problem with the halls. They're getting scared now. Um, Doug and Judy both went to Michigan State University. And every time Michigan State plays my school, Notre Dame, Michigan State seems to win. But over the years, I've learned to forgive uh, Doug and Judy for that. So I want to bring up Doug and Judy because Judy is involved in everything Doug does. So we can't just introduce Doug. So can you come up? So this is my friend Doug and his wife, Judy. Yeah, we appreciate very much your church. I thought that the choir was beautiful and the singing and... Uh, knowing a few of you, I have really learned to love uh, your church. I appreciate your pastor so much. You, you, be, you, you, you seem to be 
uh, you know, have a very vital mission activity, uh, all the missionaries, <laughs> some of whom I know well, and uh, we appreciate being here tonight, or today, <laughs> and I'm not going to speak that long, actually. <laughs> uh, the, um, <clears throat> uh, and uh, it's, uh, you know, I think your church is a beautiful place beautiful thing. Uh, the few people I know, what you do, trying to make up your missions budget, uh, that's exciting stuff. I want to share with you, though, uh, the text again that we just read. Joe read very well. Uh, and uh, the part that is particularly meaningful to me, and I want to read it again. It says, you did not choose me. Uh, but I chose you and uh, appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should last. Then that your fruit shall last. Then the Father will give you whatever you asked in my name. I believe that... Uh, this is my life's verse. I did not choose God. He chose me. And that uh, when it says, I will give you whatever you asked in my name, uh, he has done that beyond what I could have imagined. Uh, <laughs> it's not a shallow thing for me. There's hardly anything I have really prayed for earnestly that God has not, you know, fulfilled. And uh, it's been an extraordinary uh, kind of last what, 55 years? <laughs> no, how long? well, 52 years, anyways, of ministry. And I'd just like to share a little bit about that. Now, you've just met my dear wife, and uh, she, uh, we've had a marriage for, what, 55, 55 years. And uh, it's so beautiful. Uh, you know, we have a love affair every day. There's not a day that goes by I don't tell my wife I love her. In some stupid way, but in some way, <laughs> and uh, and so it's uh, it's just been a really wonderful thing. And uh, we have two children, uh, both of whom are happily married, which is a great blessing of God. And uh, I we adopted a son who's African American uh, at about five months old. He's now what forty <laughs> five. And uh, this African-American son has said to me the most wonderful things a father would ever want to hear. It's been incredible. And so we are so happy with our children, uh, with my wife, and um, it's been a beautiful thing. We live in a neighborhood that uh, was very drug-infested, very run-down, very full of crime, uh, even riots, major riots occurred in our neighborhood. And uh, it was, uh, you know, just a devastated place. We prayed that it could become something that was beautiful. Today, it's one of the most beautiful neighborhoods anyone would ever want to live in. Isn't that an answer to prayer? <laughs> it's, it's, it's a really great neighborhood. We love it. And it's where you'd want to raise your children. But initially, it was this horrible, horrible place in many ways. 
beautiful, beautiful people in it, but it was a difficult situation. And uh, then, uh, you know, we've worked with a, a Emmanuel Gospel Center now for 55 years, and uh, we've uh, seen a, a very highly gifted staff, many of them from Ivy League schools, working there and ministering very effectively, as Joe has said, in virtually every kind of thing you could imagine. And uh, they're particularly uh, concerned about helping people uh, become better leaders in their church. And so this has been a, a great blessing of God. And, um, and as we part from the scene, it's our desire that this ministry will do far more after we leave it than when we were in it. And I'm going to explain that a little bit as a really key point, okay? Uh, so anyway, this organization. And then finally, uh, well, another thing that we did uh, experience was a revival. And some of you have heard about it. We've probably explained it before. That when we came into Boston, it was almost like Detroit. <laughs> You'd never know it by looking at the city today. Uh, it had a, very, a lot of very run-down neighborhoods, a lot of very run-down people. There were riots. There were all kinds of mess happening. And Christianity had been in decline in this city for 40 years. There were about 3% people going to church in the city when we came. And so this was an incredible uh, place to come. And... Uh, and, and so our desire wasn't to bring some people to Christ or to start a church here or there. Our vision was to see the whole uh, city changed. The whole city. Uh, and to see not just a few churches planted, but the whole uh, community of the body of Christ grow in our city. And we didn't want to see it happen over a couple of weeks or a few months. We wanted it to happen over decades. And, uh, and so we, um, thank you for that. And so we, uh, we really thought to um, see what would happen. Well, so I have to admit that now, after 55 years, and of course we caused all this to happen. <laughs> we caused nothing to happen, actually. But uh, while we've been there, uh, a revival started that has gone on for five decades. So even though the city declined for four decades in Christianity, it has now grown for five decades. And uh, it's a very secular city, but it's probably one of the fastest growing Christian communities to be found in any city in the U.S. Many of the big cities in the Midwest, which have so many more Christians than we do, are actually in decline of Christianity. And here, in a very secular city, Christianity is growing quite dramatically. And so we, uh, we were a part of, uh, of, of seeing all of that. And it was an enormously significant thing. And, and again, it went far beyond what I could have imagined, but it happened. And, uh, and so when we came, it was one of the worst cities for anybody to live in. Now it's considered one of the best. Uh, so not only did Christianity grow in it, uh, the communities changed. There was dramatic uh, social change. 
uh, and uh, there was dramatic spiritual change. Physically, socially, spiritually, everything took off. And I think that they all fit together. I don't think you really have a true revival of God until things really change physically and socially as well. And uh, that's what happened in Boston. It was incredible, all the things that happened. And um, like we, Joe said, we helped to start a, a seminary, which became one of the uh, primary seminaries in the world for training in urban ministry. Uh, and I, you know, I've had uh, the privilege of teaching hundreds of students, and some of them have done enormously significant ministries, far beyond even what I have done, actually. Uh, and and, and that was my goal for them. For instance, one student uh, who wasn't really one of my better students <laughs> said he's going to start a ministry among sickle cell patients. I don't know if anybody has ever heard of sickle cell. It's a, a disease that affects primarily African Americans and people of color. And it's a hugely painful disease. And, uh, and he said, well, in one of my classes, I'm going to start a ministry among people with sickle cell. Well, he started a ministry, and he took sickle cell patients to the hospitals. Why? Because black Americans were coming to the hospital, and to get drugs for this extremely painful uh, disease, they were almost treated like drug addicts rather than patients. And he took sickle cell patients into the hospital at Harvard University and explained how they felt in the hospital and had some of the doctors crying. Now, he did the whole thing. He dealt with the hospitals. He dealt with the patients. He got tons of volunteers. Uh, he uh, even did research. And anybody that was doing sickle cell research, he would celebrate them, bring them to the black church, and they would uh, honor these people that were doing research. And so he just started this whole enormous ministry, and then he gave it off to some other people who could run it better when he went to, once he got it going, which is the beautiful way to do it, actually. But this is only one example. We've had so many students do these incredible things in our city. And we've had the great privilege of teaching them. Another thing that's kind of interesting, too, is that uh, uh, with all that's happened in Boston, uh, it's uh, um, the um, more churches, as many churches as we've planted, and the Christianity has gone from about 3% to 15% attending church, uh, and uh, and it keeps growing for for decades now, and uh, it uh, and not only reaches Boston, but it it plants more churches in the region and the world than it does in Boston. Churches are planted all over the world from Boston, not through big mission organizations, but uh, people who are Brazilian will know relatives in Sydney, Australia, and they'll plant a church there. And so we have uh, scores of uh, ethnic groups from every corner of the world who have planted churches in Boston and are now planting them in their homelands. Now, this is the way missions worked in the first century. It didn't have a lot of big mission organizations, but they used the people and their normal connections to every corner of the world. Every ethnic group has uh, enormous numbers of diaspora situations, even a Haitian uh, which is a tiny little country that you're working so diligently to help uh, today uh, in this church, and uh, we are too. Uh, even Haiti, as tiny as this country is, uh, has Haitians in, uh, oh my goodness, we know of about 30 countries. 
And so when you reach one particular ethnic group, they reach their own people. And that's the way it happened in the first century. And so Christianity has gone and done what Acts 1.8. Go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Uttermost. We've seen that happen in Boston. Churches planted all over the region and all over the world. And so uh, this has been our life. We've seen enormous things happen uh, for God. And uh, it's, um, like I say, uh, I'm not up here saying that we had anything to do with that, uh, but we did have the privilege of seeing it happen. And uh, I could not imagine, and I would not want to trade places with anybody in the world. (laughs) We have seen so many incredible things happen in our city. And uh, the other thing that we now desire is that when we leave, that uh, not only would it not die, but things would get better. (laughs) And I think that should be the goal of all of us. When we depart from the scenes, from a particular thing, things should grow, not decline. And so this uh, this has been our life. It's been an incredible life. Okay, Now you might say, how did all of this happen? And I have three things that I want to share with you that, I, that have been a secret to, to me, to not just see a few people come to Christ, but to see a whole city change, not just to see some people fed, but to see whole communities developed, uh, not to just um, uh, try to help uh, plant a few churches, but to plant churches all across the city and across the world. Uh, you know, how does all this occur? And uh, I think there are four, three biblical things that, uh, to me, are extremely important. And according to the theme of your church, it's something these three things all of you can do, even the children. We can all do these things. Some of them you already do it, and I don't even know it, okay? Now, first of all, you start with looking for things that are vital. One of the problems of Christianity is we deal with a lot of we say the world is, 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 is literally going to hell. You know, there's so many problems out there. We need to see where God is doing good things. And we need to focus on the vital things that are happening in our world. We need to see the vital people. We need to see the vital activities that the church is doing. And we need to celebrate those things. And, uh, and so uh, most of our life has been when we go into an area uh, of the city, my whole thing was just to figure out how, where are the vital people here, and how can I help them. That's all we did. And uh, what's exciting is that when you work with the vital people, you're studying where, you know, God is already at work, and you're nurturing it. And uh, this, to me, I cannot emphasize this enough. In your own church, in your own community, in your own family, find out where the life is and celebrate it, nurture it, and make it better. Uh, and I find this works. I mean, you can work with a lot of problems, and, the, and, and you seem to work with these problems, and you go nowhere. But you start with vitality, and believe me, it moves. And uh, that's where we've seen so much things happen. The other thing is we've used what we, the process of the gospel, and you have in your <laughs> bulletin what it is. Okay? You can t- t- open it up. Uh, and it has uh, a little circle with some things on it, okay? I'm going to describe this to you, but I'm going to also suggest that all of you have experienced this to some degree, 
and many of you are already doing this, and you don't even know it, okay? And anybody can do it. Like I say, a child can do it, okay? Uh, a mother always does it, <laughs> and, uh, and so forth. So uh, it, it says it starts with observation. You go down to a people, and you sort of observe as a fly on the wall. You just try to see what's really happening, and you try to find the vital things that are happening. And then positive regard. You could ne- you should never minister to anybody, anybody, until you have first fallen and you know love them and care about them and really appreciate them. Ministry doesn't count until you can do that. You have to like the people that you're working with. That is fundamental. And then you have to communicate with them, which is kind of hard. Because uh, especially when you go to different races and so forth, what it means is what I think I'm saying is what you're actually understanding, and what you think you're saying is what I'm actually understanding. It takes a long time to get to that. But that should be our goal. Uh, and, uh, and so we try to really relevant commun- communicate. And then we meet perceived needs, the needs that they think they have, not what we think they have. And uh, we try to find out how that can happen uh, by both of us working together on it. And, uh, and so we meet perceived needs. And then uh, the thing naturally goes from there to meeting basic needs, where if we meet the perceived needs of people, something very dramatic can eventually happen. For example, they can come to Christ. <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, then uh, a dramatic basic need is met that changes things enormously for them. People get delivered from addictions and terrible marriages and so forth. When one of those things happen, multitudes of other things happen with it. And so it is here that you begin meeting their needs and it multiplies. Now, if you notice this carefully, this is exactly what Jesus did. And uh, he came at the right time, at a certain time in history, observation. He came, even though we were pathetic, he came because he loved us. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. And so he loved us. And then he communicated with all kinds of people, and we have a lot of what he communicated. And then he met perceived needs by, what, all the miracles that he did and all sorts of other things. And then he went to the cross and met the basic need. And then the whole thing multiplied when he left the world <laughs> and the church was born. So this is exactly what Jesus did. So when you do these things, you're not talking about the Bible. You're doing the Bible. This is how you do the Bible. Uh, you fall in love with people. You try to find a way of communicating properly with them. You work with them on meeting needs that they understand. And then you go on to see the basic needs met. And then God multiplies what occurs. And we have seen this happen over and over again. This is one of the most successful things. You can do a lot of things in the city that will produce negative returns. You can be sincere and be sincerely wrong in how you do it. But if you follow this pattern, the negative stuff is usually eliminated to a great deal. And you do stuff that really works, okay? Now, <clears throat> the, uh, we have experienced this in many ways. Oh, my goodness, look what time it is. Huh? <laughs> I thought it would be short. Okay. Uh, anyway, um, let me just tell you 
you can find vitality and then nurture it uh, in all sorts of situations. Now, one time we had, uh, uh, well, there was a big riot happening in our area. And so we wanted to see the riot end by finding the vitality in the riot. <laughs> now, if you can find vitality in a riot, you can find it anywhere. <laughs> okay? And so we did. What we had had is big Spanish meetings in the park where this riot happened and uh, all kinds of people were uh, there. And when the riot occurred, it was in the Spanish community and uh, it was terrible and the whole place was under curfew and uh, the police were the only ones loud in the neighborhood and kids were out looting and burning buildings and people were getting shot and all this kind of stuff was happening. Okay, Now, how... Can the, how can we find vitality in a situation like that? Okay, Well, we happen to know all the militant people in the city, a lot of them anyway, and one of them came to us and said, we need to bring this riot to an end. And so, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. And uh, they suggested a way to do it. First of all, he said, you will get all the police out of the area. And, uh, and, uh, and then we'll have a, a religious meeting in the middle of the riot, and uh, this will bring it to an end. So we had to go to the city of Boston and ask them to remove all the police out of the riot area and have a religious meeting. Well, we first started by getting a few hundred people to pray because that's not something a city normally wants to do. <laughs> and uh, amazingly, amazingly, that the city agreed to do it, to take all the police out of the area and to um, have uh, us come and hold a meeting. Well, one of the, at the time, there was somebody that was going to come and say, um, <clears throat> uh, one of the riders, I mean, we have, we have conflicts between New York and Boston, okay? Some of the riders from New York wanted to keep it going and some of us in Boston wanted to end it, you know? Anyway, so uh, so the, we said, uh, so the, the city actually not only took the police out, they built a stage for us. And some of the militants said, let's, you know, rip the stage down before this thing gets started so this riot doesn't end here. And, uh, and so one of our people that we were working with, who had been himself a drug dealer and a gang, or, uh, a gang leader in New York and came to Boston, and now he had been saved and he was pastoring a church. <laughs> He did what a typical pastor doesn't do, but he walked up to this guy who was going to tear the stage down. He says, I tell you what, I'll walk to the edge of the park with you and we'll fight it out. <laughs> if you win, you can tear the stage down. If I win, it stays up. Well, they went to the edge of the park and the militant looked at him and said, I can't hit a man of God. <laughs> but he wasn't a man of God because he was preaching. He was a man of God because he was out in the streets. And and the militant people respected what he was doing with poor people and with all the problems. And, he, and then he simply said, okay, the stage stays up, and the riot ended. And uh, he, the, the guy who was the gang leader also got all the kids who were doing the looting, <laughs> and he put orange T-shirts on them and said, okay, now you're going to be the security patrol for this meeting. <laughs> How can you lose, you know? <laughs> and so the kids proudly put on their orange T-shirts and came to the meeting, and they're the big security patrol. <laughs> and, uh, and so here it was that the riot was brought to an end by the life that was in the city, 
was in the rioters. They brought it to, it to an end. Now, if you can find life in the middle of a riot, you can find it in the life of anybody. And uh, you can nurture it. And, uh, and that's what we did do. Okay? So, you know, we, uh, we then began to see all kinds of things happen in our city that uh, were extremely exciting. Now, the... Um, <clears throat> Uh, let's see here. Wow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the um, but the other thing that I uh, you know wanted to say I want to say these two things. One, look for vitality. Look for when things are good are happening, and help that. Encourage it. It's amazing how far that goes. Okay. And then follow this process of the gospel thing, and it really really works. Uh, now I um. I was uh, uh, just read to you my life's verse, and uh, I serve God, uh, and uh, and I'm a servant of God. But I never wanted to be a minister. Uh, I felt that I could be unintendedly counterproductive. <laughs> I could mean to do good and end up doing bad things. I felt that from the day I was born again. <laughs> well, that's a long time ago. And so when God called me, I said, no, I don't want to be a, I could, I could mess things up for you. I know that this is possible. And, and, and I made God promise that if I served him, he would not allow me to be counterproductive. He would not allow me to do things that I thought were good that would actually mess somebody up. And uh, so on that basis, I, I did serve God. But... Uh, and then he, but he wanted somebody who felt they could be counterproductive. Why? Because he put me in the middle of an area that was totally counterproductive. All the stuff that was happening, people would try to build new housing, and the housing would create a worse slum. People would try to overcome drugs, and there would be more drugs. People would try to overcome crime, and it would increase the crime. You know, this is an interesting thing. I mean, you could, you can actually, you know, like try to deal with the things of, like, we don't want to see abortions and fight against it, you know. But the issue isn't to be on the right side and to fight abortions. The issue is to get fewer and fewer of them occurring. And how does that really happen? Because you could actually get into it and be opposed to it and be helping it. This is how the complicated world we live in. You know, and it's the same with marriage. You know, we want to have people, men and women, married, you know, but if we fight the wrong way, we can actually create more of the thing that we're opposed to. And so what we have to figure out is how do we have more men and women in happy marriages in our world? And what will produce that? And look at that kind of stuff. And uh, not just take the simple answer. Uh, of, of doing something, because that's how we found it. We, we could help poor people, hand out food and stuff, but what worked best was when we changed the whole neighborhood in which the poor lived. And then the poor began, and then their neighborhood began to provide them uh, employment and housing and, and food and all kinds of stuff, and their whole life changed. And so it wasn't just enough to do some simple little thing. You had to do something that was basic to their needs. Otherwise, feeding them could actually cause uh, them to be dependent on your food. <laughs> and so all this stuff can work counterproductively. And so God put us in the middle of a place that was rife with counterproductivity 
because he knew we feared it enormously <laughs> and that we wouldn't fall into those traps. And, and God has abundantly blessed us in that regard. Well, okay, I've gone through two of the things uh, here, and I'm going to try to get to the last one now. And basically, the first one is, you know, we look for vitality in the messed up world. You look for real life, and you can find it no matter how messed up it is. It'll be there, and you nurture it. Uh, in the Schindler's List, uh, you know, he found a way of saving a thousand Jews in Nazi Germany. <laughs> how can you do that? He showed how it could be done. And, and so it is that we can find ways of finding vitality and nurturing it. And um, <clears throat> and so and then when we follow this pattern of the process of the gospel, which by the way is what every mother does when she takes care of her baby, you do this. You observe. You love the baby. You have relevant communication with the baby. It's complicated. <laughs> and you meet the perceived needs of the baby, and 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 uh, and then eventually you meet the basic need of their growing up and being an adult, and reproducing <laughs> other people. And so every mother does this. It's intuitive to us. Everybody that becomes married happily does this. You know, you observe. I observe my wife. I had positive regard for her. <laughs> uh, I had, then we communicated with each other, and then we met perceived needs for each other. And then the basic need was met that we became married and became one. And that has produced an enormous uh, flow of things in our life. And God has greatly multiplied our ministry uh, through being a team in this way. It's incredible. And so all of us, this is intuitive. You may not know it, but some of the best ministries you've already performed, you were doing this but you didn't know it. It's intuitive to us. It's how we think, and it works. And uh, we need to do it because it's, how, it's what Jesus did, and we do the Bible when we do it, and we do something that's very intuitive. Now, uh, sometimes if this stuff doesn't happen, have you ever heard of attachment disorder of children? <laughs> it's horrible. We knew somebody that had attachment disorder, and that's because the baby did not have this kind of care. It produces enormous problems. We knew somebody that had a kid with detachment disorder, and it was so horrendously terrible for 15 years. The kid actually said, I'm going to kill you while you're sleeping at night. They would rip apart the house. They would do all kinds of things that were terrible, terrible, terrible. But the mother said, even though he was left when he was a baby, I am not going to leave you. And she started doing the process of the gospel. This kid today is one of the most great, wonderful kids you'd ever want to meet. He's a beautiful Christian young man. And he never wants to be reminded of that terrible stuff. But when people don't get this, not only do we not get the fruit that it produces, we can actually create damaged ministries without having these things operating. Because we're made to uh, be nurtured by this kind of thing. Now, the only final thing I want to say is, okay, so this thing is very basic. Uh, I've written it out. You're already doing it. You know it intuitively, and particularly the women do. But uh, I think we all do it. Uh, so we start out by looking for vitality. 
We do the process of the gospel to nurture the vitality. And the last thing uh, that I think is important is that um, we set up ministries so that the greater things are done by the people who we disciple, not by us. And uh, like I say, I want to leave this ministry at the Emmanuel Gospel Center, and when, it, when I leave it, I want it to do greater things than happened when I was there. Now, can you imagine what, it would, what ministry would be like if all Christians were discipling people so that they do greater ministry than they themselves doing? This would never end. It would have an enormous impact. And this is what we're called to do. And uh, when you do it, <laughs> a lot of times uh, people will uh, respond to you and do stuff, and, um, and they forget that you even helped them do it. <laughs> then you've known you've done it right. But that doesn't give you a lot of pats on the back because, you know, you're just helping people really do what they're already gifted to do. And when they do, it explodes. And uh, you're, you're not that important. Even in all of this stuff, I read all these things that my life had experienced in, in, in unbelievable stuff, okay? But we didn't do that. It was done by other people. It was done by the people we discipled. And, uh, and they did greater things than we could have ever done. And, and, I, and I say this because, again, I, I think it's something that we all can do. And that's what your theme of your missions conference is. How can we do it? This is how you do it. You find the vitality. <laughs> There's a lot of mess out there, but you find out where the good stuff is, and you nurture it. And then you nurture it properly by doing the process of the gospel, which is what Jesus did. And we're only doing what he did. And then we set it up so that the, uh, in the end, the people we work with do greater things than we did. This does not stop. This will evangelize the world. This changes lives. And this will produce in your life, as it is in ours, enormous things. And uh, nobody can thank us for all that happened because we didn't do it. And um, so I just wonder if we could just pray for a moment. I thank you for bringing me here and uh, originally asking me to speak on what has happened in my own life and so forth. But let's pray. Father, uh, there's enormous wealth of people here. Each one has an enormous potential for ministry. And around each of us are some beautiful things happening. There's some things that people are struggling, struggling with. Uh, but uh, there's beautiful things. Help us to see the life that you're already producing in this world and to make ourselves a part of that life and nurture it. And help us to follow the model of your son who taught us how to uh, do this process of the gospel, which we all have a little diagram of in our folders. But we do it intuitively, and when we do it intuitively, that's the best way it happens. And then, Father, that we could desire that all the people that we have, our children, our Sunday school kids, uh, the parishioners in the church, that the people that we work with will do the greater things. Not we, but they will do it. And Lord, this is how you sent your son. This is how he lived. 
his, his words to just before he left were, greater things will you do than I have done. And that's his message to us as well. I thank you, Lord, for this beautiful church and all the great things that exist in it and all the things that you're yet to do through these dear people. In Jesus' name, amen.